Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. The title of the study is Justified justified. So let's go before the Lord in prayer, and we'll see what the Lord has for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this opportunity to break the bread of your word together. And I pray, Lord, for the gift of teaching. I pray for a fresh filling of your spirit, that I would decrease, you increase, and I pray for every person under the sound of my voice, Father, to, and as well as myself, Lord, to have our hearts open and stirred to receive what you have for us and to also be able to surrender to the work you desire to do in us and through us. And so, Father, we pray that you would instruct us through your word, encourage, convict, correct, rebuke, just just show us, you know, sound doctrine, Lord, whatever it may be, Lord, help us to be open to that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So today we're going to learn about a doctrine or a teaching regarding salvation. And so it's something, this doctrine that we're about to study, is something that we do not want to miss out on. Because there are great blessings that come with understanding this particular doctrine as a believer. And so the doctrine that's related to salvation or in regards to salvation that we're going to take a look at, a deep look at, is justification. And so, of course, we're going to see that here in Genesis 15 uh, as we continue to look at the life of Abram or Abraham. And so in verse 1 of Genesis 15, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And so there is something that I like to call a first mention alert. In other words, there is a, there's a word or words that have been mentioned for the first time, not only in the book of Genesis, but also in the Bible. And so the first mention alert is in regard to the word, word. And so you see there in verse 1 where it mentions the word of the Lord. That is the first mention of the word, word. And that phrase as well, word of the Lord in the Bible. Uh, There's also another first mention alert in regard to the word vision. So in other words, this is the first time the word vision appears in the Bible. This is also the first time shield and reward appears in the Bible. And so this is the first mention alert that we have so far. And so now the events Um, In chapter 15 in Genesis, um, come after what things? Because it starts off by saying after these things. And so what things are being referred to? Well, that means we need to refer to the previous chapter, chapter 14 of Genesis, which was our previous study. 
And so in the previous chapter, Genesis 14, Abram, Aner, Eschol, Mamre, and Abram's 318 trained servants, they pursued and they fought against the four kings who had taken a lot captive as well as Lot's goods. And they also took the goods of the people and the people of these five defeated kings. And so amongst the five defeated kings in Genesis 14, um, you had the king of Sodom as well as the king of Gomorrah. And so according to Genesis 14, um, Abraham was successful in his mission to, to rescue Lot and also to rescue Lot's uh, goods, the goods of the people, and also the rest of the people who belong to those five kings who were defeated by those four kings in Genesis 14. So the scriptures also tell us that uh, after this mission, this successful mission of Abram, it tells us that he was met by someone by the name of Melchizedek, whom we talked about in the previous study. Now, Melchizedek, of course, was the king of Salem, which is an ancient name for Jerusalem. And he was also the priest of God Most High, El Elyon. And he was given bread. Speaking of Abram, he was given bread and wine and also blessed by Melchizedek. And the scriptures also tell us in Genesis 14 that afterwards, Abram or Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe or a 10% of what he had. Now, after that interaction Abram had with Melchizedek, the Bible tells us that the king of Sodom stepped into the picture and he requested from Abram the people and then also insisted that Abram take the goods for himself. But of course, we find out that Abram refused to take anything for himself from this king of Sodom because he had sworn to the Lord that he would not do so because he did not want this king of Sodom to take any credit away from the Lord. He didn't want this king of Sodom to to think in his head or even mention that I'm the one who made Abram rich. And so these are the things that we've seen in in Genesis uh, chapter 14. And I mention all those things to connect what it says in verse 1 in Genesis 15 after these things. Now notice that the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. And so in this vision, we see that God told Abram to not be afraid. And so the question must be posed. Why would God tell him to not be afraid? And so the obvious answer to that question would be that Abram was afraid. He was fearful even after that, um, that, that mission and how successful he was rescuing Lot and all the people in these goods. But, but here, he's by himself now. He's afraid. The Lord spoke to him in that vision. And so I wonder, why was he afraid? Maybe Abram was afraid. Because he he knew that he had made some new enemies. Those four kings that he defeated in order to rescue Lot. Cheater or uh, Keter Laomer, Tidal, 
Amraphel, Ariok, those four kings of Genesis 14. So maybe he thought, okay, I defeated them. They're going to come back uh, to me and try to beat me now. They're going to try to get some revenge against me. So maybe that's something that he was afraid of, that they would retaliate against him. Or, or maybe he was afraid that things weren't going to work out the way that God had promised him. And so we can speculate, but what we do know is that Abram obviously was afraid. But what I like here is that God gave Abram or Abraham some reasons to not be afraid. And and one reason God told him to not be afraid is because God told him that I am your shield. In other words, God told him that I'm your protector. I am your defense. You don't need to be afraid Abram. And and this is the same message that we can take with us as well. A message that we can remember and, and keep near and dear to our hearts when fear begins to creep up in our hearts, maybe due to some um, imminent threat or a circumstance that, that we're in that we can't see our way out of. The message that's for us as well as God is our shield. You see, we have made as believers some spiritual enemies. And that spiritual enemy, of course, is Satan and those fallen angels who are with him. And we have this spiritual enemy because we have sided with Christ when we put our trust in him for salvation. But I like what it tells us in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. And this is the second half of that verse. It says that he is a shield to those who put their trust in him. So God is available as our shield, as our protector, as our defense. But when we put our trust in him and take advantage of this blessing that comes through the Lord, of him being our protector, our our defense, our shield. But now there's another reason that God told Abram that he need not be afraid. And that other reason is that God told him that I am your reward. In fact, he added something more to that. He said, I am your exceedingly great reward. And of course, not only that, but God would even give him great rewards. And so maybe God is addressing the fact that Abram had turned down those goods because Abram turned down those uh, materials. He turned down the the things that he could have gained from the war to, to get a little richer. So he missed out on that. He had made a promise to the Lord. He wasn't going to take it from the king of Sodom. And so because of that, maybe the Lord reassures him and says, hey, I am your exceedingly great reward. So Abram need not be afraid because, number one, God is his shield, his protector. But at the same time, he is his provider. And of course, God is our provider as well. And of course, for us, our reward comes from the Lord. God is our reward. God is the best thing that could ever happen to any person. Amen. Amen. He is our reward. And just like Abraham, we too 
may have to turn down or you may have already turned down something um, that would have made you a little more rich. Something that would have made your bank account look a little more fat, so to speak. Your pocket's a little fatter, some would say. And so maybe you turn down some offers that look good on the surface because you wanted to honor God just like Abram or Abraham honored God. And maybe there's, there's something that crept up in your mind. Maybe you're looking back at that moment when you turned down that lucrative offer. And you said, well, maybe I should have accepted that. But maybe if you're having that thought, maybe the Lord is uh, giving you this same message that he had given to Abram that, hey, I am your reward. But verse 2 tells us that Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. So I have no child. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And so here we, we have another first mention alert. And the first mention alert here is found in verse 2, where it says, Lord God. So what you see here, if you look in the Hebrew, is Adonai Yahweh. And Adonai here, this is the first time, and it's translated Lord with capital L, and then the rest of the word is lowercase. And so this is the first time Adonai appears in Scripture. And so when Adonai is used, it, it talks about a relationship. This is a Lord to a servant, master to slave. And so Abram refers to him as Adonai Yahweh. And so he says, what will you give me? I go childless. In fact, there's, there's a servant in my house, Eliezer. It's a servant in my household, and he's from Damascus, this major city in Syria. You know, maybe he is the heir. So I'm not getting any, any younger, Lord. I'm, I'm getting older. So maybe he's that heir. See, the Lord had promised to make Abram a great nation. He promised to bless him, to make his name great. He even promised to curse those who cursed him, to bless those who blessed him. And he told him that in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we know that will be fulfilled in the Messiah, who, according to his humanity, will come from the lineage of Abraham. But then God also promised to give Abram and his descendants Canaan and to make his descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. And so at this point, some believe that about 10 years had passed from the time that he left Haran to go to Canaan, which we call the promised land. And so, of course, he doesn't have any children. And so in these scriptures here, we see that Abram's faith had taken a hit. They had taken it had taken a hit to the point that he thinks that Eliezer, his his servant, will be his heir. According to one source, it says that a household servant would be the one to take care of a childless couple in their old age and in turn inherit their possessions. And so um, Abram thought that this was the case of him and Sarai or Sarah, his wife. 
That is how soul serving will be the one to take care of them and then inherit their possessions because, Lord, you made these promises to me, but I don't even have a child. I am childless. And so I can picture some of us in this situation. I can picture some of us um, facing this challenge of having to wait for a promise made to us to be fulfilled. And so, of course, it's not a fun thing to do. Speaking of waiting, it's not always fun to wait. In fact, I can't think of a time where it's fun to wait, period. Maybe you're waiting in line for some food. Whatever the case is, it's just not something that you would put on your to-do list. And so in Abram's case, in our case, it's, it's a challenge to wait for something the Lord had promised to us to come to fruition but Abram, in, in this situation here, he, he was thinking of something less than God's best. You see, God's best is his perfect will, and God already shared his perfect will with him, the promise that in you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Promised them all these things. That was God's best. But Abram was, he was only seeing the less than best, this servant of his household taking over, becoming the heir. And we can get that way as well. We can, like uh, Abram, settle for a lesser version of what God had promised to us. Why? All because it's taken too long. Because we believe it's taken too long in our book, but in God's eyes, it's not. In God's eyes, it's right on time. Because a thousand years is as a day with the Lord and vice versa. God sees time differently. What we think is a long time is a short time for God. And so because of this weight, we, we tend to settle for less. Less than what God had promised us. Less than God's perfect will for us. In verses 4 and 5 it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him came to Abram saying, this one, this servant in your household shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir, the one to inherit all of your possessions. Then God brought him outside. He brought him outside his tent and he said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And God said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. And so here we see that God gave Abram clarity and he gave him reassurance of the promises. And I just love how God does that for us as well. When we begin to get off track in our thinking from the promises of God, some, from something that maybe we can see in the scriptures, promises that we see in the scriptures, or, or maybe it's something that God had, has spoken to our hearts and, and we just know that, okay, God, you have this for me. But then maybe a little doubt comes in. Maybe you get to that point where you're willing to settle for less than God's best for you, less than his promises. Maybe you get to that point. But then God comes in like he does with Abram. And he gives you clarity and he gives you reassurance of his perfect will for your life, of his promises for your life, of his plan for your life. And I just love how God does that right when we need it. Right when we're hanging on by a thread and that thread is about to pop. 
right when we're right on the edge and we're just about to fall right over the edge. God steps in and he reassures us and he gives us clarity right when we need it. At that point when we don't think that our needs will be met or have been met and we're just right on the edge about to fall over that edge. Then God reminds us, gives us clarity, gives us reassurance that, hold on, wait a minute, I am your provider. Just when that thread is about to snap and we think that we're all alone, that God has left us. And and now we have the Lord reminding us of that word that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so this, the same thing he's doing with Abram, just giving clarity and reassurances of his promises, is something that we could appreciate for ourselves. In verses 6 and 7 in Genesis 15, it says, And he believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, or Babylonia, to give you this land to inherit it. And so now, once again, by the way, we have a first mention alert. And so this time it is the word believe. And so this is the first time in the Bible we see the word believe. Uh, But also, this is the first time we see the occurrence of the word accounted, which could also be interpreted as imputed. And so we have a couple more first mention alert here in verse 6. But notice in verse 6, it says that Abram believed in the Lord. So in other words, he took God at his word. He took God at what he said. And I just wonder today if, if this is something that we are used to doing. Are we used to taking the Lord at his word? We see it in the Bible. We see it in this love letter here, this, the scriptures. But I wonder if we take God at his word or do we doubt what he says? In fact, we heard the song tonight that I am what you say I am. and speaking about the Lord, believing what God says about us. So do we take God at his word like Abram did when he, when he speaks something through his word about who we are in Christ? Is this something we're used to doing? In fact, in, in this world, of course, we, we can sometimes see the opposite. Because there's some people who allow their own experiences to override the scriptures. And sometimes you could read, this, you could read straight from the Bible about a certain doctrine, about a certain teachings, and and yet and still somebody will say, but I experienced this. You always go back to the scriptures. You can't base doctrine off of experiences. Otherwise, you're going to put yourself in, in the authority of God just changing the word based on your experiences. And then, of course, there's some people who allow their feelings to override the word of God. Well, you know what? That was just for the culture, for that culture at that time. Or, you know, those men that, that God used to, to write down the words in the Bible, they, were, they weren't that educated. Or, or those men who wrote it down, they, they looked down on, on women. 
But, but the last I've seen, it is God who inspired the word. He breathed out the words. And he gave the word to men that he set aside to write down his word. And of course, he used the personalities of the men he used, but it was his inspired word. And so this is his message that we're getting from the scriptures. But yet some people will allow their feelings. Well, I feel this way. Is your feelings going to get you into heaven? Feelings come and go. Feelings change. But the truth, the word of God doesn't. Or then there's some people who allow the so-called experts or they may even allow politicians or so-called news stations to dictate what the word of God is really saying. But instead, we should be like Abram. This is what God's word says. I'm going to take God at his word. See, as believers, we need to trust the one who is eternal. We need to trust the one who is all powerful. We need to trust the one who created all things. He knows all things. So this God who inspired these scriptures, he knows exactly what he's talking about. And so we should take him at his word. He knows what's best for us. He knows what hurts us. And therefore, he tells us to stay away from certain things. But then he also tells us to do certain things. And so I'll rather trust the eternal God who loves us than man. Who sometimes will operate based on their experiences or feelings. Or because they have a worldview, they start with a certain worldview where God is not even a part of it. And then they read that into the scriptures and then tell you what it means. That is the exact opposite of what we should be doing in Bible study. And in Bible study, we should be doing something where you're pulling out of the scriptures and then going from there. It's called exegesis. You pull out of the word of God. And that determines the doctrines or the teachings that, that we should believe and then share with other believers. And even people in the world, if they want to know about God, they want to know about Jesus, they want to know about, uh, um, you know, how you would obtain eternal life. Then in verse 8, Genesis 15, and it says, and he said, Lord God, once again, Adonai Yahweh, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How shall I know that I will inherit this land? And so here, you know, Abram, he just wanted something more to hang on to. In other words, he was looking for a sign or maybe some type of proof of promise or um, a little more detail. So he just wanted more information from the Lord. It wasn't that he didn't believe at this point. And so we're going to see the Lord do something that's, that doesn't happen that often in the scriptures. And so Abram asked for this sign. He asked for just a little more detail to give him more reassurance, right? And so we see in verses 9 through 11, it says here, So he said to him, so God said to Abram, Bring me a three-year-old heifer which is, a, of course, a young cow or a young cow, one, you know, that has, given, has not given birth to a calf yet. So bring me a three-year-old heifer, a, a three-year-old female goat, 
a three-year-old ram or a male sheep, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures, these birds of prey, came down on the carcasses of these animals that had been split in half, Abram drove them away. And so Abram is uh, following the Lord's instructions. And so what you see in here is uh, an ancient ceremony that Abram is preparing for. And so in this ancient ceremony, um, you're going to see something that's going to be called cutting a covenant. And so this, what they're about to do is going to formally bind these two parties to an agreement or a covenant or contract, if you will. And so the covenant will be confirmed by cutting the sacrificial, sacrificial animals and then having the two parties of the covenant pass between those animals that have been cut in half. And so you have the animals split. They're split on the left and right side. And, and the parties who are part of this covenant or agreement are to pass between the middle And at the same time, they are to repeat the terms of this covenant or contract or agreement. And once again, this is what we call cutting a covenant. And so it carries the idea, cutting the covenant, carries the idea that this same bloodshed that has happened to these animals that have been cut in half, this same bloodshed uh, deserves to be done to the one who breaks this covenant. And perhaps even done to his animals. And so all of that is wrapped up in, in, in this ceremony that's about to take place. That idea. And so Abram here, what you see here is that he was getting a contract ready. And so reference to this ceremony is actually made in Jeremiah chapter 34 verse 18. And so this same type. Of, of ceremony here, you can see it there in, in one of the books of the prophets. And so if the parties in this covenant will fail to keep their word, then once again, they deserve the fate of these animals that have been split in half. And so it is very detailed, just, um, you know, lots of meaning in this here. And so we want to keep that in mind as we're about to see what happens And so in verses 12 through 16, it says, now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, horror, this shuddering, shuddering fear, this terror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them. 400 years and also the nation whom they serve he says i will judge afterward they shall come out with great possessions or wealth now as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried at a good old age but in the fourth generation or after your great great grandchildren are born they shall return here to canaan for the iniquity or sin of the Amorites is not yet complete or has not yet reached its full measure. And so God lays out 
some history concerning Abram's descendants in advance. And so we see in here history in advance. We're, we're seeing prophecy here giving from God to Abram concerning his descendants because Abram asked, how will I know that I shall inherit this land, Canaan, this promised land? And so at this point, of course, we know he's in a deep sleep. So, so maybe Abram could still hear the Lord speaking to him while he was in this deep sleep. Maybe the Lord could maybe speak to him through a dream or something like that. We don't know exactly how it worked, but he was speaking to Abram here. And so what God is doing is working his way to telling Abram exactly how and when his descendants, that is the children of Israel, will make their way to Canaan and inhabit it. And God tells them that first, the children of Israel, they're going to go to a foreign land. First, they're going to go to Egypt. We know it to be Egypt as we keep reading in the scriptures. And they're going to be enslaved and oppressed in Egypt for 400 years. You know, Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41 says 430 years. And then Acts in the New Testament, chapter 7, verse 6, tells us, 400 years. And so here we see also in Genesis 15, uh, God mentions the 400 years that Abram's descendants will be in this foreign land. They're going to be in Egypt. And so how do we reconcile the differences in numbers? If Exodus 12 tells us that they were there 430, but then Genesis 15 and Acts chapter 7 tells us 400, um, how do we reconcile the numbers? Well, there's a couple of ways. Uh, first way to, to reconcile those differences in numbers is to see the number 400 as a rounded off figure of the exact number of 430 years. So maybe it's just a rounded figure. But then another way to reconcile these differences in numbers is to see the 400 years as the time the children of Israel were, were afflicted. So that's the amount of time they were afflicted, but then the 430 years will be their time of the entire stay in Egypt. Because if you remember, Jacob and his family who went to Egypt, they were not in slavery. They were not enslaved. And so maybe that 430 years is, you know, considering that entire time of non-slavery plus the time of slavery. And we know, of course, according to Exodus 1, that the affliction from the Egyptians would start after the death of Joseph. And so those are a couple of ways to reconcile the differences between the 400 years and 430. But, but God gives them that heads up that your descendants, they're going to be in this foreign land for 400 years. But then God also said that he's going to judge that nation the nation of Egypt. And we see that if you keep reading in the scriptures in the book of Exodus, you see that in the 10 plagues that he brought upon the Egyptians. Not only that, but God shared with Abram. Again, this is history before it even happens, right? This is prophecy. God also told him that the children of Israel, they're going to come out of Egypt and they're going to come out with great wealth. Well, if you study the scriptures in the book of Exodus, notice that Moses told the children of Israel to ask for things from the Egyptians. And so the the Israelites, before they left in the Exodus out of Egypt, 
What they did was ask the Egyptians for articles of silver, gold, and also clothing. And the Egyptians gave that to them. And so they indeed came out with great wealth. And so once again, God's word is true. God's word is right. But then again, God told Abram that his descendants, and after that, that exodus, they're going to return here where you are, Abram, to this promised land, to Canaan in the fourth generation. And the fourth generation, by the way, is used to refer to that 400 years. If you were to just look at the context here in the scriptures in verse 13. So even the fact, and here's another thing that God shared with him. God even shared even the fact um, of him dying as an old man. That, that's going to happen, Abram. You're going to die as an old man. And according to Genesis 25, we see that Abram or Abraham would live to be 175 years old. I'm going to tell you this when it comes to giving history, if you will, or giving prophecies or, or telling the end from the beginning. When it comes to that, there is only one God who can do that because there is only one God. There is only one true and living God who can tell the end from the beginning. In fact, God says in Isaiah 46 uh, verses 9 and 10, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure and God will do his pleasure and God's counsel will stand and has stood when it had come to Abram and the Israelites and there are some promises that have not been fulfilled when it had when it comes to the nation of Israel that will one day be fulfilled and we could be thankful for that as believers because of God and he will keep his promises to the Israelites to the nation of Israel that means he's going to keep his promises to the to those of us who placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we can bank on the fact that if God says that if we place our trust in Christ, then we're going to be resurrected, that we're going to spend time with him in eternity, then we can bank on that because his counsel shall stand. And so what we see here as well, there's a lot of things to unpack. So I'll try to get through this quickly. There's a couple other things that we see here that are happening in a parallel way. And so first of all, what we see here in these scriptures are the Israelites being prepared to inherit the promised land as God has given this message to Abram. But then at the same time, we also see the Amorites being given a chance to repent. And so during this 400 years, all of these things are being prepared for Abram's descendants. But at the same time, the Amorites have 400 years to get it right to repent. And Amorites, by the way, speaks of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And so God is showing how long-suffering he is. I'm, I'm going to give them 400 years to repent. And that just takes us to, of course, 2 Peter 3, 9. You, many of you already have this memorized that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness or slowness, but he is long-suffering. He is patient toward us. He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. 
You see, there's some family members of ours. There's some friend of ours, uh, of, of all of us, that's what I'm speaking of, who have not yet received the Lord, but yet and still God allows them to live. He's given them an opportunity to repent, just like he gave these Amorites, these inhabitants of Canaan to repent. But of course, we're going to see that when the Israelites come into the land as after the exit of out of Egypt, we see that God is going to use the Israelites as his uh, tools of judgment against his people in the land of Canaan. Why? Because God is just mean and he just wants to wipe people out? No, because they didn't repent after these 400 years. And so the Israelites will be used as God's weapons of judgment against them. And so you have a just God taking care of the sin issue. In verses 17 through 21, Genesis 15, it says, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven or a smoking fire pot and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Remember those two rows of animals that are cut in half? And then it says on the same day, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant. He cut a covenant, in other words, with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, uh, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So these are the names of the ten different types of people who lived in pre-Israelite Canaan. And so God is walking through these animals that have been cut in half. And so remember what I mentioned earlier, that both parties, both parties of the covenant would normally pass through those animals that have been cut in half. They will walk between those slain animals. And remember, it was to be a sign that if either broke the covenant, the agreement, then they shall suffer the fate of those animals. Their blood shall be shed. They are deserving of that. However, what we see here is only one participant. We only see God passing through. We see, in other words, symbols of the uh, presence of God passing through. And so this burning torch and this smoking fire pot, these were just uh, symbols that God was there. And they are the, the, and so this burning torch and the smoking fire pot, you, that's all you see walking in between these animals that have been cut in half. Abram, by the way, was not a participant. So this tells us here that, that, that God, since he's the only one who passed through those pieces of dead animals that were cut in half, what that's telling us was that this was a self-curse ritual. This means that God was signing a contract for both him and Abram. In other words, what this is saying is that God was promising to bear the burden if any of them broke the contract. This is what God was saying. And so what we're seeing here is what we call an unconditional promise. And so Abram, you people, all of us, we can be unfaithful at times and, and we'll fail at times. But, but God, the one who cannot fail, he says, I'm going to pass through by myself. And I'm going to ensure 
that what I promise you is going to happen. This covenant, what he's telling Abram, it's not going to fail. Why? Because the faithful God is passing through. And the faithful God never fails. And so that's something that we need to remember for ourselves. That all the promises in God are yes and amen. So be it. They will happen. But one thing I want to do before we leave this place is is address something in Genesis 15, verse 6. And so we're going backwards a little bit because there's something special here we see in the scriptures. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says, and he, speaking of Abram, he believed or trusted in the Lord. And the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. So, so in this verse, we see that Abram was justified. And what is justified? What is justification? Well, justification is an image drawn from the law court. So when you talk about justification, think of a courtroom scene. And when it comes to justification, it does not mean that God is literally making somebody upright or holy, but it means that he's announcing a favorable verdict. It means that he's declaring a person to be righteous. In other words, God is not talking about practical righteousness or righteousness by experience, He's not saying that Abram or anybody who's justified is inherently righteous, that their nature has been changed. But, but, but justification is talking about a declaration of righteousness. Not that man is righteous in and of himself. And so in other words, Abram was righteous in a forensic sense. From the legal standpoint, he has a right standing with God. And so this is what we call an imputed righteousness, where it says it was accounted to him. And so righteousness was put into Abram's account because of his faith in the Lord. And this, by the way, is what the Lord has done for us. It's not something that we work on. In fact, justification is a single act. It's a declarative act. That happens when one puts his or her faith in the Lord. And so, of course, we see that Abram was declared righteous because of, once again, his trust or his faith in God. There were no works involved. He wasn't, sac- uh, he wasn't circumcised. He wasn't baptized in water. He didn't do any good things, knock on doors or give any money to be declared righteous. But he simply trusted in what the Lord had told him. He trusted in the Lord and the Lord gave him that verdict or declaration of righteousness. He put that into his account. And so we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans real quick. In Romans 4 verses 2 and 3, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was imputed into his account. In Romans uh, 4, 5, it says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. 
So is good works. Are good works important? Yes, good works are important, but it is not the good works that saves us. Instead, good works is evidence of the real faith that we have because real faith is going to have works that correlate with that true faith. And so just wanted to throw that out there about the works because some may be thinking it or you're going to come across some people who are going to take the book of James out of context and say, see, you're justified by works. No, what it's saying is that true faith is going to have worth, uh, works that correlate or go along with it to show that it's true faith. But here you see that Abram was declared righteous without any works involved, but simply his trust in the Lord. And by the way, all people, all human beings have the need to be declared righteous, whether they know it or not. And I can guarantee you there are some people who do not think or believe that, that they need to be declared righteous, that they need this not guilty verdict. There are some people who don't see the need to be forgiven of their sins. You see, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none righteous. Nobody is inherently righteous except for God. So people need to start with that. And then, of course, you all know it, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of, the glo- uh, short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's glorious, perfect standard. And then the wages of that sin, of course, Romans 6, 23, just the first half, it says, for the wages of sin is death. So we see the result of sin. So this is all of mankind, all of humanity. But yet and still, there's some people who don't see the need to be justified. And so like Abraham, there is a need for all of us. You see, for the person who repents and and trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation, this is what happens. This is what happens in justification. I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to, I'm going to make it plain. When, when a true believer who puts their trust in Christ for salvation is justified, this is what happens. First of all, that person has a new standing. In other words, uh, you were at odds with God. You were not on the same page with God. You were at enmity with God. But because you're justified, because of your faith in Christ, because of God's grace, his unmerited favor, then now you have favor with God restored. You have become a friend of God now. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified or declared righteous by faith, or I could say because you have a, a new standing or a right standing with God by by faith now, guess what? You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have a new standing. That's one thing that happens when we are justified, but also that person is forgiven before a holy God, which means that our guilt is removed. Something to hold on to, something to remember. But if the guilt is removed, if our sins are forgiven, if we have a right standing with God as believers because of justification, then guess what? That means that death penalty is removed. Because remember it says the wages of sin is death, but the death penalty is removed because of justification. You see, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin. He's perfect. He never sinned. He made him to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Speaking of justification, 
to, in order for us to be justified, Jesus, a perfect sacrifice, had to die in our place and take the death penalty. But, but get this, when we're justified, not only is the sinner pardoned for his past sins, but then we are also supplied with the positive righteousness, and that righteousness comes from Christ. And so in other words, there's this big trade-off that we see happens. Just like we've seen, um, you know, in, in the scriptures, I think it was with uh, Barabbas and Jesus, you had to switcheroo take place. Where Barabbas was the guilty person, Jesus is innocent. And so it's the same thing with us. And so with us, Jesus have did, this, did this switch off. He took the penalty of our sins. And if we put our trust in him because he died for the penalty of our sins, we put our trust in him, then guess what? We get his righteousness imputed into our account. That's the trade-off. But then this is also what happens when we're justified. We are saved positionally. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and he conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And so when it comes to salvation, what we need to do, believer, is understand the doctrine of justification. We need to understand that doctrine. Why do we need to understand justification? We need to understand this because some Christians are still operating with the works-based salvation as if they have to work for the salvation. And then there's some Christians who are still walking around as if they're still condemned. They place their trust in Christ, but still walking around as if they're still guilty on their way to hell. And if they're in that state, it's going to have a paralyzing effect on their fellowship with God. And it's going to also cause an unhealthy fear in believers. That's why 1 John 4 tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And so we want to be perfected in that love. And then get this. Some Christians also will be stunted in their spiritual growth because they're not sure from one moment to the next that they're saved. If we don't understand justification. But here are some scriptures to help the true believer with their security and salvation. John 5, 4, this is the true believer. Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. If you can lose salvation, then you have to change the definition of everlasting life. It's not everlasting. And it says, and get this, you shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's past tense, passed from death to life. That's for the true believer. We're justified. Ephesians 1, verses 13, 14, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed. In other words, you received this stamp for security and preservation, and that seal is the Holy Spirit. When you trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit is your seal. You are secure. And notice what it says about the Holy Spirit of promise. He is our guarantee. In other words, he is our down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So if you want that evidence like Abraham asked for, that's your evidence, the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment that you are going to receive your glorified body. He's your down payment that God will complete that process of salvation in you. 
You see, we have this guarantee until the purchase process is completed through resurrection and glorification. You know, Romans 8, 9 says this, speaking of the Holy Spirit, by the way, it says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if you have the Holy Spirit, (laughs) you belong to Jesus. You're truly saved. And look at what it says about the Holy Spirit, by the way. This is what Jesus says. John 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. How long does the Holy Spirit stay? Forever. Can you lose your salvation if you're truly saved? Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not his. See, if we don't understand justification, we're going to get off. The enemy will use that against you as the worship team takes the stage. You see, the spirit of truth, it says, as we continue, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. So the Holy Spirit does not indwell people in the world who are not saved because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him as believers, if you're a true believer, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's there forever. He's your seal. He's your down payment. But now get this. This is what you need to understand about justification, Romans 8, 1. Now, there is therefore now no condemnation, so the guilt is gone. You are not on your way to hell anymore because you are justified. You are declared righteous. You have a right standing with God at this point. You're in fellowship with the Lord. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so, believer, because you are justified by faith, I would encourage you to start walking in freedom. Start walking in the freedom that you have in Christ. Because you are justified uh, by faith, by faith in Christ, focus on being righteous in practice. You see, you are already righteous in your standing. You cannot move from that. Justification is a, is a one-time deal. It's done. That is your standing. Now from justification, now you go through sanctification, which is a process of becoming righteous. And so in other words, you are becoming by experience what you already are by your standing. Righteous. That's how God sees you. And then because we're justified by faith, we can now focus on ministering and witnessing as you've been called to. We've been called to that. We can focus on that now because we're we're justified because we understand that we're declared righteous. But but as we remember the fact that we are justified, that we've been declared righteous, that we have a right standing with God, what it should cause us to do as believers is to praise the Lord because none of it will be possible if it were not for his blood, if it were not for his obedience, if it were not for his resurrection. None of us will have the opportunity to be justified. But the scriptures tell us that 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 Because of his resurrection, because of his blood, we are able to be declared righteous through faith in him. So spend that time praising the Lord and not get caught up in that fear that the enemy wants to put upon you. Amen. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for justification. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just reassure us that we're good with you if we truly placed our faith in Christ. And so, Lord, may you bless my brothers and sisters in Christ. Give them traveling grace. Use them in a mighty way this week. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're able to stand, please stand. Thanks for coming out. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And as always, we love you. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.